0: The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Monday, February 24th, 2020 from Slate It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and Bernie Sanders is in the driver's seat. I just can't decide if it's a Prius or a Duesenberg. It's a rambling unwieldy jalopy, but it's big enough to fit all manner of Democrats, Socialists, and Political Revolutionary. Also some never-Trumpers. After getting almost half the vote in the fractured caucus in Las Vegas, 538 has Sanders as the most likely candidate to win the nomination. I am going to call him the odds-on favorite. Thus far, I've been reluctant to do so. Why? Well, here's why. The prediction markets have him right now as a 60% favorite to win the nomination. I saw it as high as 67% a day or two ago. That's just a data point and a data point about perception, but there it is. I take 538's numbers to heart. They're not gospel, but they're very good. And they say Sanders has a 46% chance of winning the nomination. In second place is no one with 40%. And what they mean is locking up enough delegates before the convention. But let's look at that 40%. There is... More than a 10, 20, even 30% chance that of that 40% chance, let's say it is true that there's a quite likely outcome that no one wins the nomination on the first ballot. Uh, The person with maybe the best chance to win it eventually will be the person who has the plurality of delegates, which 538 is telling us will be Bernie Sanders. What I'm saying is, Ed Sanders, 46% chance to whatever fraction of the 40% he represents, he's over 50%. He is more likely than not to win the nomination. That all said, let me also say a few things that are true. These are things that are true. Even if the big Bernie fans, I don't want to diminish them with the sober K Bernie bros, but the most vocal and impassioned Sanders supporters don't like me saying it. One true thing, caucuses are bad. They're bad for democracy. They're a bad way to count votes. Now they have three public steps, each one a new chance to screw up. You might not have been paying as close attention to Nevada as to Iowa, but results are slow coming in they're contested, and it seems that there are a lot of internal inconsistencies. I mean, if Iowa was a 10 out of 10 in expectations and an F for execution, Nevada was a 6 out of 10 in expectations and probably a D plus or a C minus in execution. There's no secret ballot. It's too time consuming. Iowa should go. Nevada should go. Caucuses should go. Two, you can't win a state in a proportional contest. Well, I guess you could if you got almost 100% of the vote and all the all the delegates. But I said this after every vote in 2016. I'll say it again now just because it's true. No one won Nevada. No one won Iowa. No one won New Hampshire. No one's going to win South Carolina. They're going to win delegates in proportion, roughly, to their vote totals in these states. And why that's important is after winning all these states, someone might be surprised, huh, how come he isn't further along to the nomination? Or after winning state after state after state. In fact, possibly after never losing a state, how could he not have won the nomination? Because no one's winning states. They're winning proportions of the delegates in each state. And three, oh, you're not going to like this one. Bernie Sanders is undervetted. Wait, why? We all know what he does, what he says, that he's never changed. How is he undervetted? I'm not talking about when he returned from Yaroslavl. In 1988, I'm talking about things like his belief in MMT. I think he believes in MMT, never says he doesn't. And his economic advisor, Stephanie Kelton, is America's main proponent of modern monetary theory. I will say before he's elected, if all informed Americans or quasi-informed Americans don't have an opinion on MMT, that will be political malpractice. I'm working on a piece or a spiel that will give you an informed opinion. But if this doesn't happen during the primary and it is up to the Republicans to define MMT during the general, it's not going to be helpful for Sanders. For the record, modern monetary theory aside, state after state is feeling the burn. And Bernie drives the uh, Stutz Bearcat all the way down south tomorrow tomorrow. For the South Carolina debate in advance of the vote there on Saturday. The collective inaction of his fellow Democrats will be the subject of my spiel. But first, Tore, broadcaster and writer, and now podcaster. I've known Tore since we were both in college together. And oh, did he spit fire on the pages of the Emery Wheel. Want to know the name of his column? 40 Acres and a Pen. That is That is a good name for a column. And now he is the host of a show... With another good name, the host of Tourette's show, it's Dick Cavett. No, it's (laughs) Tourette. Tauré is here. He is a journalist and a critic. You may have remembered him from uh, MSNBC. And now he has a podcast that I've been listening to, dropping in on, uh, sort of eavesdropping. <laughs> Tauré's show, no articles here, definite or indefinite. Hey, Tauré, how are you?
1: I appreciate you for noticing it's Tauré's show and not the Tauré's show. It's just Tauré's nice. show. Nice. I think it was slightly inspired by Chappelle's show, mm-hmm. right?
0: No articles, Yeah. Just Hell's Although that. alphabetically, if they count the the, it's not too far off from Torey's show. So if people <laughs> went to find the Torey's show, it would be there no, anyway. No, it would still be there. But yes. no, I
1: wanted no articles. Just get right to it.
0: I was waiting for you to have a podcast. You're a really good interviewer. It was, was going to come around one day. Thank What's you. the idea between how you book guests and what you want to talk about?
1: Well, we try to talk about success. I wanted to talk to really interesting, mostly black people, not always black people. We've had a lot of great white people, some great Asian folks, Latino folks, but Latinx folks, but like, you know, really focusing on black people who are successful in some field, be it Mm -hmm. entertainment or sports or maybe business or politics, and try to get at who you are and how you became successful and what you know as a master of some area That can help other people say, oh, that's how you do it. So when I talk to Amy Sherald, I want other painters who are coming up. She's
0: Michelle Obama's portraitist. Yes, Yes. I want
1: other painters to go. Okay, this was a really interesting discussion of how to be a painter, which will maybe help me get from being a low to mid-level painter to a higher level painter. Or when I talked to Taraji P. Henson, or we just did one with Russell Hornsby or another actor. Billy, do,
0: Billy Porter was a good one.
1: Billy Porter. Yeah. How do I get from being a, you know, a beginner or a low-level actor to a higher-level actor, to understand the craft and the business of it. So, I mean, like, just you've become successful. What did you do right that other people can build off
0: of? Now, the with Amy Sherald, that was an interesting conversation because I got the feeling so much of her genius is intuitive and instinctive. And then she has been asked over the years, well, explain it in a way that isn't visual, explain it in a way that makes sense to the ears. And I know this from working in sports a long time. Sometimes you ask an athlete, you know, how do you do it? And they don't really know. So she has been asked it many times over the years and she developed an answer, but I'm not sure. It seemed like she was kind of trying out her answer and saying it could be this, but I can't really say exactly where it comes from. Such as the nature of the work I do.
1: I mean, you know, she was brilliant, and just sort of talking to her about how she does her thing was really interesting. And sometimes it's just about not asking people questions, but presenting observations about what they do and then letting them respond to that. Right. Sometimes I feel like, as questioners, we make a statement, and then at the tail, you ask a question which changes the direction of the conversation mm-hmm. and makes
0: it easier or h- impossible to answer, and right? Because like, they have to always react to that last tail of a question yes. when that maybe wasn't your intent. Yes, yeah. and if you just if
1: you just pose the observation, Amy hey, Child, your color choices are amazing and they're bold and vibrant, and I feel like you could erase the figures. You're a portraitist, but you could erase the figures and just do abstract. Color fields, and I would be so fascinated. Yeah. There's no question there. But I've just made this observation uh, that is hopefully compelling to her. I have had a couple of people throughout my career say, Is there a question here? And I'm like, Work with me here. Like, we're doing an interview. But not
0: on this show. Or if, if they say that, they cut it out. Because they, I think no, they're we, excited we, to be there. We
1: very, very <laughs> rarely edit. I would struggle to think of things that we edited out. There have been a couple, but not in a long, long time. We really go for like to put 100%
0: of the tape on the air. Well, half your life is an interviewer or some significant portion. And half your life is an opinion giver, a person who is paid to tell us what you think. Uh, It's been about, what, nine years since you wrote the book on post-blackness? Something
1: like that. Yeah. Yeah,
0: And so since then, I mean, things have changed a lot. So the title was, Who's Afraid of Post-Blackness? What It Means to be Black Now. Mm. How has what your answer was then, how has that changed from 2011 to 2020?
1: Well, what I was talking about in that book was the complexity of blackness, how we're not monolithic. I think that the notion that we're not monolithic is still clear. Yeah, I think that given the era of Trump and my own personal, more deeper understanding of something like, you know, mass incarceration, Black Lives Matter issues, you know, the police violence epidemic that we have been going through. If I had to do over in terms of writing a survey of what it means to be black, it would be a much different book. It would deal less with identity and more with more concrete issues of survival of spiritual and physical survival
0: well do you think it's because then in 2011 we had the space we had we we took a breath yeah during right in the pretty in the middle of the obama presidency yeah yeah absolutely we had the ability to sort of say not just black people all people okay we're not currently under assault let's really tease out what our identities are it seemed that way identities have kind of been compressed by the Trump administration. I
1: mean, in the second Obama term, these sort of infamous tragic killings sort of rose up, right? Black Lives Matter right. rises up. The new Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander's amazing book, really educates a lot of people on the whole game as it's being played. Patrice and Opal and Alicia and DeRay are, like, educating people on how the game is being played. You know, Obama and them are open to it. All of that alone would say to me, like, you have to say something different than an identity statement of, like, we are more complex. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was responding really to Obama being elected and then saying, okay, so, I mean, even, like, the night before Iowa— saying America's ready for, in in 2008, saying America's ready for a black president, even like black political scientists would have laughed you out of the room. Yes. So we were all wrong. So what else are we wrong about around race? Now, noticing like some things have changed and some things have not. And I was certainly not saying we are post-racial, that post-blackness is entirely different than post-racial. Now... It seems almost like we're going back to narratives of of pain and trauma and, you know, repression and hate crimes that, like, our parents would be like, this feels like the 50s again. And, yeah. like, for Trump, it's like, yeah, that's what I was talking about. I mean, yeah. you know, the last few months on MSNBC, I was like, when he says make America great again, what is he talking about? What era is he throwing back to? Um, and I think now we could see it was like the fifties and like, you know, where the white man is fully in control and is, things are pretty bad for black men and for women in general. And so you would really have to address that much more. And I would have to deal with much more with like what Michelle Alexander was talking about in her book. And I would write something entirely different.
0: Do you think that the notion that has taken hold and largely been embraced of a white supremacy and we live in a white supremacist society, is that the best way to look at it, a good way to look at it, a way that properly uh, addresses and speaks to the experience of most black people?
1: That we're in a white supremacist society? Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't want
1: to speak for most Black people, of course, but I mean... (laughs) After you just got
0: (laughs) done telling me about the monolith, yes. Right, right,
1: but I mean, you know, look, I think a lot of us have been clear that it's a white supremacist country. It was that when Obama was elected, that was not... It's not like we took an eight-year break from that. Right. A one singular black man was allowed to drive the gigantic spaceship that still perpetuates white supremacy. Sure, He... Tried in his own way to make some changes to it, but it's not going to be changed by one president. No, and, and there's ways that his blackness keep him from being able to make some of the changes that we need. I feel like the single thing that is most damaging to Black America is the war on drugs, right? And mm-hmm. it, and all the things that it leads to in terms of the over policing, the over incarceration you know, the over penalizing of black and brown people for using and selling drugs and white people are using and selling drugs at similar rates. And, and their only way to end the underground market for drugs is to have a legal market, right? Because if there's a legal market, then the math for the underground market doesn't make sense anymore, right? If they lose yes. a significant portion, even 25% of their business, it no longer makes sense to risk your life and risk lots of money trying to get drugs in yeah. from Mexico if you do or it Canada. In
0: it, if you do it in a somewhat competent way, because Colorado, there's still this underground market, even though it's legal because of there's still the an way they screwed up the regulation to some extent.
1: I, I imagine it will take time yeah. Yeah. to
0: to, for it to collapse? No, but stipulate. What you're saying but is like, yes, if you the only f- way to get past it is to legalize.
1: Yeah, right. and you know, but like can the black president be the first one to to push through legalization? No, he can't. Especially not when he spends all his political capital trying to get health care and save the banks yes. and there's a Republican Congress that's like, we're going to make sure you accomplish nothing.
0: Right. When he was, all of his pro-black agenda was always had to be sold as, couched in, but also it was literally true. This is helping everyone. Will it help black people? He would go on and say, yes. And in fact, it'll help black people a lot. And the ACA is going to be great for black people, but it's not just for black people. And he would always get criticized by some vanguard of the intellectual left. But think about the politics of it. It's impractical for for Barack Obama to say and now here is my reparations program.
1: Yeah, Barack Obama's not going to be able to. I don't think he even believes it by the way. Yes. Reparations. <laughs> yes. So yeah, I mean I would write a different book now. I mean it almost, you know, it's it's almost like you find the book, mm-hmm. right? And like you would write a different book at one point in your life or one point in history than you would at another time and if I had another another crack at it not that I disavowed that book I'm still proud of that book not necessarily of all the books I've written but that one I'm still proud of but I would but I'm working on something that I think will be pretty epic if I do say so myself tell um, me I'm doing a six could sprawl to seven hour podcast about Prince oh oh'll deal in depth with his life and who he was as a person, as a lover, as a musician, his youth, his influences, his work ethic, his work process. I've talked to a ton of people about, like all insiders in his life, people from the revolution, people who grew up around him, girlfriends, photographers, stylists, engineers, you know, all kinds of music, people from the new power generation, all kinds of people from different eras of life about who he was, and I mean, like I wrote a book about Prince. Yeah, I've interviewed him. I've written a lot about him, and I've learned a ton in the creating of this thing. So I think that's going to be pretty exciting.
0: How do you find out how he was as a lover? You talk to people, and they yeah. are honest with you. Yeah, absolutely.
1: They're not trying to
0: elevate their experience because it was with Prince. Like, who is really yeah. emboldened to say, "Yeah, it was okay. I've had better."
1: people were very honest about all of it i mean like if you get a similar answer from multiple people Mm -hmm. you can tell oh this seems to be true and keeps getting repeated over and over i mean and there's some epic stories about him that we're able to tell as well that's uh that's a lot of fun
0: Torre is the man, in fact, the titular man behind Torre's show. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll be looking out for that big Prince. When's that going to drop? The Prince series.
1: Uh, later this year, not too far from now. It's about 90% done. I've got
0: a couple more interviews to do, a couple more edits to do, but we're, we're getting there. All right. He takes you in the music room and in the bedroom with Prince. <laughs> Thank you so much, Torre. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And now the spiel. Tomorrow is a huge debate in South Carolina, or maybe just a huge spectacle that does not have the possibility of rewriting that which is faded. Of course, in this campaign, rewrites aren't hard to come by, like this example of a very public type of editor's note, as reported by Youngstown WFMJ, Channel 21.
1: Just hours after opening the downtown Youngstown field office for Mike Bloomberg's presidential campaign, it was defaced. Caution tape littered the trees, plyboard signs saying stop and frisk, and oligarchy.
0: Couple things. The sign, which I showed right there on the screen, did not say oligarchy. It said oligarch, a more pointed critique of the man who embodies the system rather than a vague critique of the system itself. Maybe not even a critique, maybe just a word, the vocab word of the day that these protesters wanted us all to know. You know, you'd write oligarch, or I'd say, oligarch at Michael Bloomberg. Sort of like if you wanted to insult Bernie Sanders, you'd call him a communist. You wouldn't call him a communism. Mm. But there's a bigger issue here, and it's all about the defacedness of the property involved. Defaced! The signs were spray painted, but not spray painted on the actual building. They were spray painted on what looks like sheets of plywood and leaned against the building. They were propped up against the building at a, uh, you know, very pleasant and flattering 30-degree angle. The face of the building is still the face. It was not defaced. The Youngstown Bloomberg HQ wasn't defaced. It was, if anything, accessorized. Now, some other Bloomberg offices were more conventionally defaced, which sort of comes with the territory. Another Ohio Bloomberg field office had the sign a billion dollars for a billion collars, I think glued to it. And next to that slogan was the slogan, broken windows, broken homes. But that was glued to a window and the window wasn't broken. And you know that the people posting the sign had, had, had to have thought of it. I mean, it's right there in the name of the sign. So remarkable restraint. By the way, to some extent, the signs are a little self-defeating. The Intercept accused Michael Bloomberg of running a Stasi style police, Stasi style police and surveillance operations. Obviously, as these defacers remain at large, the Stasi style tactics didn't extend to, I don't know, buying a Simply Safe and a ring with monitoring for the front door. By the way, the Stasi, you know them, they were the East German police. They arrested a quarter of a million dissidents. Bloomberg's supposed Stasi style monitoring of Muslims yielded precisely zero criminal charges, which argues it was more Mayberry tactics with a little mix of constitutional violation. But Mike Bloomberg doesn't need me to defend him. First of all, I can't, not completely. Second of all, he apparently has an army of meme monkeys at his disposal. Tank Sinatra and at-cal salad and at the funny introvert. They're all pushing out wackadoo Bloomberg whimsy. To quote a wise man, God help us. A week ago, Michael Bloomberg was rising in the polls and seen as one of the more centrist candidates who could knock Bernie Sanders off his perch. Then the rest of the field put bars of soap into their towels and flailed at his body for 90 minutes straight in the great Democratic Blanket Party of 2020. Tomorrow, they will get another chance to either beat down Bloomberg or smack down Sanders. Last time around, Bloomberg was tantalizingly dangling from the ceiling like a multicolor cray paper burro at a nine-year-old's birthday party. And all the other candidates just knew there were tons of votes inside as they smacked it over and over again with their sticks. Now, the conventional wisdom said this was unwise, said that the more moderate Dems should have known that Bernie Sanders was the opponent and that Bernie was the man at the top, not Bloomberg. Bad strategy, said the conventional wisdom. Except, all right, one, Bloomberg and Buttigieg both very much tried to knock Bernie. Mm Mm-hmm. Biden hit Bernie a bit, hit Bloomberg a bit, but petered out at the end and needed a blankie. Then Klobuchar, I sense she turned to her right and wanted to lay into Bernie, but there, right there, her vision of Bernie was blotted out by the boyish insouciance, Mayor de Blasio would say, smugness of Pete Buttigieg. And Klobuchar could not take it. Are you trying to say that I'm dumb or are you mocking me here, Pete? No, Senator Klobuchar, I know not. To downplay the revolutionary power of women's anger, I have red traced her. I got the drill. But we now have accounted for every Democrat on the stage, why they didn't attack Bernie. Every Democrat except one, Elizabeth Warren. And if there was ever a candidate who very much needs Sanders to fade in order to rise, it is Elizabeth Warren. They occupy the same lane as the thinking goes. The thinking being the conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom is what we're debunking here. Take that in stride. But here's the thing. Elizabeth Warren agrees with Bernie Sanders more than anyone who's left in the race. And Elizabeth Warren pretty much got into public life to go after the activities of guys like Mike Bloomberg or specifically Mike Bloomberg. Taking it to Michael Bloomberg is what Elizabeth Warren was born to do. It makes her feel most alive. So when we think about the last debate, picture instead of six candidates up there, half a dozen podiums, let's recast this. Podia, I don't know. We have six podia still, but we have three salmon, a Kodiak bear, a cobra, and a mongoose. Now everyone should logically fear the bear. The bear is the apex predator. If you don't team up on the bear, you are going to lose. Even the mongoose knows she's got to fear the bear, but she's a mongoose. Sure, the bear is above her on the food chain. Oh, but the cobra. Look at the cobra. She's a mongoose. You're a cobra. How do you not go after the cobra? And then she gets him. She gets the cobra. She gets him to say, I don't know, maybe some field mouse thought I made a bad hiss at them over the years. And she wins. She defangs the cobra. And it puts a lot of cash in her coffers and pep in her step. And a few days later, she was still reveling in a successful attack about a threat that is coming our way. And it's
1: a big threat. Not a tall one, but a big one. Michael Bloomberg.
0: That is halfway between Trumpian and triumphant. So if Elizabeth Warren isn't going to attack Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden is a bit too scattered to attack Bernie Sanders and Buttigieg and Klobuchar are fouling out early in a low-scoring Big Ten affair, well, how is Bernie Sanders going to be stopped? Answer, he's probably not. Then again, if he was he'd be stopped by now. There doesn't seem to be any great argument that will confuse and derail Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders has an answer for everything that comes his way. I have heard claim that Bernie Sanders is susceptible to the charge of coziness or at least lack of hostility to the gun industry. Yet Bernie Sanders has been batting away that charge since Hillary Clinton lobbed it his way, I don't know, 35 times during the last primary. The Euro-Socialist critique gets met with, yeah, I know, and here's what that means, let me define it for you, pretty much FDR. I mean, it's not 100% accurate, but it's more accurate than this. We're not going to throw out capitalism. We tried that. Other countries tried that. It was called communism, and it just didn't work. And if that gets not just Bernie Sanders going, oh, no, you didn't, but I heard two or three people, oh, knowing, I think calling the guy a socialist is not going to stop him. Bloomberg... Or maybe Klobuchar can go after him for the sexual harassment with his 2016 campaign. But that is well known and it hasn't really hurt Bernie yet. This idea that there is a way, any way, to discredit Bernie Sanders with a jab or an accusation or a critique, it just seems wrong. Bernie is now an idea, an idea that enough Democrats have gotten behind that it seems very hard to derail. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Lobby produces The Gist. She meant to criticize Bernie Sanders, but was laughing too hard at those dank memes and she totes forgot. Daniel Schrader is The Gist's producer. He was gonna stick at Sanders, but there was something about his affect and demeanor that reminded Daniel of his grandpa. Well, not his grandpa. Daniel's not a Jew who grew up in Bialystok and lived in the shtetl, but you know, there's probably some grandfather who did. The Gist. We were so going to take down Bernie Sanders. But Tom Steyer, how is no one saying anything about this guy's tie? Oomperoo dapperoo Peru, and thanks for listening.